Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. We've heard a lot about the Me Too movement and lawsuits that have been leveled against abusers. But what about the institutions that allegedly enabled the abuse? A little later in the show, we'll be joined by Chicago court reporter Diana Novak-Jones to tell us about a case using a novel legal approach to tackle the problem. And later on, we'll end the show by talking about some Shakespeare a judge used in a dispute over wine. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Amber, William, it's great to be here. (laughs) Everyone's so cheery today. Yeah, yeah. We're just just very caffeinated. Who knows? Well, I know that Alex and I want to talk a little uh, legal pop culture. Yeah, I mean, in the wake of the the overwhelming success of the proceeds honoring the best legal film, I thought it would be good for us to talk about... The uh, new frontier in legal television. I know you and I both watched the new Shonda Rhimes show. Yep. Uh, I thought you were talking about Franklin and Bash coming back. Well, I mean, there's lots of room here. Uh, but yeah, no, it's called uh, it's called For the People, and it outlines the travails of young attorneys working in the SDNY. Uh, it does. And yeah. Bill's giving us a blank stare. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, what, do they have someone play Jed Rakoff? No, I, I, That'd be are, are there, neat. no, I mean, the, the judges, were judges all... didn't stand out as much, yeah. but the show is set in the Southern district of New York yeah. and they make a big point of that. They refer to it as the mother court. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of a plot point. I got to say, I'm a little bit of a sucker as we sit here recording in our Manhattan office yeah. um, for things set in New York. I mean, the end of the show is literally on the Brooklyn bridge. Yeah. I mean, uh, I know it's cliche guys, but I like it. I, so you liked it. I mean, what's your, like your 20 second uh, take? I think that. If you're looking for hard-hitting legal drama, look elsewhere. But if you like Shonda Rhimes shows yeah. and you just like the dynamics of like legal stories always have stakes of like opposing sides and conflict. So a lot it's like good for a TV. lot like suits. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, well you're kind of on the right track there. Like this is about I mean this like you say, it's not really groundbreaking. Like I no. thought it was funny that in the I watched that only one episode is aired and at the end of it like uh one of the uh, one of the attorneys has taken on a very hard to win case and then of course loses and then her like mentor character like literally says out loud hey this isn't TV you don't yeah she did you, say that That's you don't really win funny. these cases and it's like okay well I think there's a lot of we're watching funny things in this pilot I think first leaning heavy into the New York not only do they end the whole show on the Brooklyn Bridge but there's a case about a, a alleged terrorist who was going to try to blow up the Statue of Liberty yeah I mean, it's like as New York as things yeah. can get yeah and then I also think it's funny the tropes that come up in legal TV shows. There's one point where you immediately know that this is going to be a good-hearted attorney who's mm-hmm. trying to do the right thing and loves people because <laughs> he's dressed shabbily. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, that's good. like a trope of legal nice. TV. Like if you're dressed in suits that are too sharp, mm-hmm. you're a shark. Right. And yeah. This guy's not that. Yeah. We should have said the, the half half the characters are federal prosecutors right. and half of them are public defenders, and it's just like so obviously that one was a public defender. There's not obviously. a lot of yeah. There's not a lot of not not a lot of room for nuance here. No. But in any case, uh, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I'd, I'd say, Bill, check it out, and then we could talk about it again, see okay. if it develops. <laughs> what, uh, what happened this week news-wise? Not much. Uh, there was some stuff that happened. Uh, yeah, <laughs> not, not much. Just a $117 billion settlement yeah. or something. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're kind of back in the trade realm. This is more like in, this is more foreign investment territory type of stuff, but I'm, uh, I'm happy to walk you guys through it. So, yes, the White House, the president himself actually uh, squashed a what would have been a $117 billion takeover of U.S. chipmaker uh, Qualcomm by a Singapore company after it was deemed uh, after the transaction was deemed a threat to U.S. national security. 
Um, the whole thing was unique in a lot of different ways. Um, but what we really learned is that the government uh, is being very sensitive about foreign investment for like for 5G cellular technology, which is what this involved. So this has a lot of things I like talking about. It's got some big splashy numbers. It's got some some tech that I always think is interesting. But mm-hmm. can you just tell us a little bit more about how the deal came together and, and what made it get nixed. Yeah, very briefly. Well, it, it, it all happened kind of quickly as far as these these types of things go. It began back in November. Uh, a company from Singapore called Broadcom uh, first said it wanted to uh, it wanted to acquire Qualcomm, uh, not to confuse those two, but Broadcom was trying to acquire Qualcomm. And it was doing so via a hostile takeover. And so uh, soon after it announced that it was going to try and do this, um, the deal, the the proposed deal, came under the view of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. You might remember this from when we had Kerry on the show, and we talked about some changes to CFIUS. This right. is a uh, Treasury-led committee that basically vets foreign investment for national security concerns. Uh, the committee moved extremely fast and basically within a few weeks issued a finding that said... We can't have a foreign company taking over this U.S. company because they are in the process of developing 5G technology. And if the U.S. Uh, you know, is sort of cut out of that, that, that technology is way too important uh, for us to be you know, behind the eight ball. And so they said, you should not let this go through. President Trump followed through with an order uh, on Monday, basically said, no go on it. So the big deal here, right, is that these are pretty rare, right? These CFIUS refusals? Yeah, CFIUS has been around since like 1975. So that's about the Ford administration. And there's only ever been five uh, that have gone to the presidential level. And they and they review dozens of deals. A lot of them are on the smaller scale. But as mm-hmm. I said at the top, it's a $117 billion so deal. So big, big by any measure, this let alone in been, this context. If, if, uh, according to some, I mean... Different sort of industrial breakdowns vary, but this would have been one of the biggest tech sector deals ever, sure. and now it's it's off the books. Um, and this one was also unusual because usually they're nixing ones that are about Chinese companies, right? Yeah, this was the first ever refusal. Like I said, there have been four before this. They've all involved Chinese companies. This, of course, involved a company from Singapore. Um, but China was still at the core of the CFIUS analysis here because... China is the country that we are competing with the most to develop 5G technology. So even though it wasn't a Chinese company, uh, Broadcom, which was trying to acquire Qualcomm, had this reputation of um, basically like a cost cutter. They come in and they would like, you know, hack off parts of the company that, you know, would not be as profitable or something. So there was a worry that they would stymie, you know, R&D for for 5G technology. So the deal itself and the rejection itself are both pretty rare. But but the way that, that this review went about happening was unusual too, right? Yeah, and this matters to to CFIUS lawyers. Um, basically, for for the, the most important thing to know is that, as I said at the top, this was a proposed like hostile takeover. You know, Qualcomm wasn't exactly like, hey, we have this deal that we want to get done with this Singapore a company. A foreign company is buying us against our will. Yeah. yeah, and normally the way this goes is that CFIUS gets notified of deals um, when they're like basically agreed upon between the parties. And what happened here is that nothing was agreed and they reviewed it anyway. Mm -hmm. And this has led to a lot of consternation on the CFIUS bar to say, like, you know, your job is to vet deals for for national security threats. But, like, you're not supposed to stop deals before they happen. That's kind of a different thing. Like, what are you what are you what are you disincentivizing here? Really? So that was one thing that raised a lot of eyebrows. The other thing was that. Uh, 
this is this is a this is a sticking point for people like me and also our our, our deals reporter Chelsea Naso who who covered this. This is notoriously a very opaque process since it deals with national security. It's very black boxy. Wasn't the case here. The Treasury Department published two different letters that it sent to the companies, basically making very bold proclamations about the concerns it had. It's very unusual for them to do that, and that's another thing that people have you know thought about. Like, oh, are we stretching the bounds of what CFIUS is? allowed to do and the way it's supposed to open the door to how we you know, examine our national security uh, threats. It's very interesting stuff. So we've talked about how weird this is, just both in the rejection being rare and you just explained like how weird the process was. What are people taking away from this? Like what's the big picture thing we should take from what happened? Mm-hmm. Well, combined with what we talked about last week, um, which was, if you, if you recall, steel and aluminum tariffs being based on uh, national security threats, this is different. But one thing that people are saying is like the administration is not afraid to use you know, the cloak of national security to protect not only the trade of goods, but also foreign investment. Um, and then the other thing, of course, is that it's putting a big premium on 5G technology. This yeah. is now, now this is something that we could have probably guessed since it is literally the fifth generation, the next generation of cellular technology, but they're putting a premium on it. So if you are representing people who want to make, uh, you know, f- inroads in the 5G uh, uh, industry in this country, um, you might face a, uh, a, a tough road if you're representing a foreign client. Well, I don't really have any way to transition from that to my story, so let's, I'm just going to... Let's get into it. We're talking about corn today. Yeah. Not, not the band. Oh, that's too bad. We're talking about the product. Feeling like a freak on a leash anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> good corn reference. This we segment have... is kind of falling away from me. Yeah, that's good. All right, no, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. I'm sorry. Stop. I'm sorry, Bill. <laughs> we have a uh, we have a $1.5 billion with Ooh. a B settlement to report this week. Uh, it was a deal involving the Swiss agribusiness giant Syngenta. Yeah. Uh, on claims that they screwed over a bunch of American farmers over the rollout of this new genetically modified corn. Okay, so that's a huge settlement. And you said that they messed with some American farmers. They must have mm-hmm. done something really bad here to be on the hook for that amount of money. What yeah, happened? It's a super interesting story. Uh, so in 2010, Syngenta rolled out this new insect repellent GMO uh, called Viptera. Yeah. And the seeds were approved in the U.S. Most corn in the U.S. is GMO already. Mm-hmm. So, um, But importantly, in China, which is a big export market for U.S. corn, the... When the product rolled out, it was not approved for sale in China. Yeah, and, and uh, other governments are extremely prickly about well, that. Well, because yeah. if it mixes with, you know, there's all sorts of weird questions when it gets when you get down to genetically modified stuff. Okay, so there's this genetically modified corn. They didn't ship that to China. Well, that's sort of the key to the whole thing here. That that so it no because it wasn't approved in China. They didn't intentionally ship it to China. But but the companies that that buy up the corn from the farmers and process it and package it and ship it and everything else, a lot of the time they mix corn from different suppliers. So it didn't matter that you were sending these supposedly clean shipments because some of this... Viptera was going to sneak in. The cross contamination. Oh, right, because it's like such big shipments that it's just bound to happen. Exactly. So that's source. so that's exactly what happened. So in November 2013, China discovers this rogue strain of corn in an otherwise unmarked shipment of corn. This it had this Viptera in it. Mm-hmm. They hadn't approved this for the Chinese market. Yeah. And as you said, people are very prickly about this because they're worried about it mixing with their plants and other things like that. So this is my whole day. Global supply chains, guys. There you go. This is wild yeah. stuff. So they immediately 
they didn't just shut down from a particular supplier or anything else. They shut down corn imports yeah. from the United oh, States. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a big deal. Oh, now I see how we're getting into big bucks here. Exactly. Yeah. So not only did that mean that, like, shipments were getting rejected at the border, and they were, this is this comes up, we'll talk about it, but that ships were literally getting turned around like, yeah. at ports and not allowed into China. Yeah, it was a huge mess, I remember. But immediately, in terms of the market for corn, you remove China from the market, and the prices drop out, because mm-hmm. you, sure. cause you're removing an, uh, so much demand immediately. So, all told, American farmers lost billions of dollars in sales because of this because this Viptera had slipped into the the supply chain. I remember the first editor I ever had on the trade beat at my job before this one was like if you learn nothing else Alex we sell a crap load of food all around the world. It's the biggest, like, <laughs> it's like our biggest export industry. So that's and that comes into play here. Yeah. So how did this? How did this end up in a courtroom? What? Yeah. What, what was? I the, mean, yeah. well, anytime you have people throwing around the idea that they had lost billions of dollars, like, <laughs> someone's going to sue someone. Moments away. <laughs> right. So th- immediately, lawsuits started getting filed in state and federal court on behalf of thousands of farmers who claimed that they had either had their shipments rejected or that their they had artificially low prices. Um, so those cases, as they often are when it comes to a big situation like this, they were consolidated into multi-district litigation and this nationwide class of farmers was certified that had been hurt by this. So mm-hmm. there was a key bellwether case in last summer yeah. in Kansas, representing thousands of Kansas farmers who had been hurt by this, allegedly. And it went really poorly for Syngenta. After a few just hours of deliberating, the jurors returned a verdict that the company had been negligent when they released this this corn without the approval of the Chinese government, yeah. and that and they awarded the class two hundred and seventeen million dollars in compensatory damages. Everything in the story is such big numbers. Well, and even bigger number, uh, the. Damages expert during that trial said that the overall damage was something like five billion. Yeah. So like huge, huge numbers. Okay. So I mean, with that ruling on the books, you can see how Syngenta got a little spooked, and now it appears. We're... Which brings us back to this. Week. Yeah. Right. Okay. So in September, a little bit shortly after that verdict, news broke that some sort of tentative settlement had been had been reached. Yeah. And you this... mean they didn't want to see the rest of these cases through? Yeah, exactly. I can't imagine why. Uh, so this Monday, the, the real numbers came out $1.5 billion settlement, um, on behalf of any farmers that, that contracted to price corn, uh, after September 15th, 2013. So okay. shortly before that, that, um, the contaminated thing was found in, in China. Okay. Um, so the company, as is always the case with these big settlements, the company didn't admit or, or, you know, didn't deny or admit. Like, you know, liability and all mm-hmm. that, but yeah, yeah. Um, is this covering all the f- potential affected farmers? That- it is, and uh, not, I mean, not all. So I'll get into that in a second. But the plaintiffs' attorneys, despite you know, despite any caveats here, the plaintiffs' attorneys are saying it's the largest uh, agricultural litigation settlement yeah. in U.S. history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a huge deal, um, especially if you're those farmers who like it probably really screwed you when this happened. Sure, because mm-hmm. that's the thing about this case that like. A lot of these people weren't selling Viptera. It's not like they were trying to sneak into China. No, no, yeah. no. The vast majority of them they were, weren't. They were right. unwitting. They were, yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, just they all of their product <laughs> was rejected. Doors closed. So, as I mentioned, the bill might get even bigger because this doesn't cover a few really important institutional litigants. That, okay. Um, Archer Daniels Midland, which is a major shipper, they right. reached their own settlement saying that they had been hurt by this whole snafu too. Mm-hmm. Um, and the numbers haven't come out there yet. Um, and Cargill, which is another processor and, and yes. you know, uh, in this business, 
they are continuing to pursue these claims against um, Syngenta, and that case is going to go to trial in September. So whether or not we see another settlement there, whether that goes to trial and they get hit with a big verdict, unclear, but the bill could get a lot bigger for Syngenta. Despite the notoriety of the Me Too and Time's Up movements, the courts have not always been helpful to victims of sexual abuse coming forward after years of silence. Procedural hurdles have made litigation a slog, but a new case brewing in Illinois federal court could tackle the issue at a more systemic level with a novel legal strategy, the use of consumer protection laws to go after institutions that have been harboring sexual abusers. Here to talk us through these latest developments is Law 360's Chicago court reporter, Diana Novak-Jones. Welcome, Diana. Thank you so much for having me. So we've heard a lot of these stories about sexual abuse. Um, They've gotten a lot of headlines. It's ousted these powerful men um, in sports and media and politics. But there hasn't been a ton of room for the law to step in and give some redress to this. Why is that the case? Well, unfortunately, a lot of that has to do with just the nature of the abuse itself and, and the way, you know, laws surrounding sexual abuse have evolved. Um, there's a lot of difficulty for victims. They, you know, it's some, sometimes they don't even realize that the abuse has happened, and then by the time they do, it's possible that the statutes of limitation have expired. And so, you know, the combination of the young age and and the sort of nature of sexual abuse has made it really hard for people to bring litigation and, and sometimes bring criminal cases against some of these you know, really high profile abusers. But you have, we have you on to talk about sort of something that could change the game a little bit here. You're reporting on this interesting case that's coming at it from a little bit of a different angle. Tell us about about this case you've been working on. So uh, a very well-known plaintiff's firm here in Chicago brought a really unique uh, suit a couple weeks ago against a Illinois volleyball coach. His name is Rick Butler, and he runs a well-known elite volleyball club that really trains girls um, that are aspiring to play in college or beyond, and and they've uh, produced a number of Olympic athletes. And the suit is actually a consumer protection suit. So it accuses Butler, his wife, who's also his business partner, and their business, which is called Sports Performance Volleyball Club, of concealing allegations of sexual abuse that have been levied against Butler over the years um, and keeping those those allegations away from parents and players at the gym, people who are paying for the training or the camps or the teams that he runs. So the idea of, of the suit is that these parents and these players would not have given Butler their business if they mm. had known about the allegations against him. And now you wrote a really great story about how this is, and, and it's what we want to talk about today, about how this is a, a new idea, this idea of using consumer protection laws for this purpose. Could you sort of walk us through what about this is, you know, is radical? Well, so you've probably seen a lot of the litigation surrounding these really infamous abusers like Larry Nasser and, and Jerry Sandusky, and those are pretty straightforward. It's a single victim bringing, you know, a case over the abuse itself against the abuser. This is 
using a, also a pretty straightforward design and, and theory of liability here. It's just straight consumer protection. You know, I would not have paid for X if I had known about Y. But it's giving um, it's giving people who wouldn't necessarily be able to bring one of those straight-on abuse cases like the Nasser ones um, a chance to have their day in court. So, Dana, that's really interesting that they're going to try to use what's essentially a, a novel um, area of the law to apply to these sexual abuse cases. Um, if this starts to gain traction, what's it going to mean for some of these other high-profile cases that um, you sort of alluded to there with Nasser and some of the others? Well, I can tell you that I, I've spoken with some attorneys who brought the cases against Nasser, the ongoing litigation against Nasser, and um, some of the ongoing litigation against Sandusky, and they have said they've never seen anything like this, but they'll definitely be paying attention because they know a lot of parents of victims and parents of, you know, kids that just you know, we're on teams that were working with NASA or Sandusky that would want to, you know, have some sort of relief from this entire scandal. Well, and when you bring up relief, I thought that was an interesting aspect of this, right? Like they're seeking an injunction that would essentially force them to disclose, right? And that they would have to say that to any prospective uh, customers? Right. So that would, I mean, you can see how that would probably torch the business if they <laughs> yes. had to post on their, you know, website that there have been allegations of sexual abuse, you know, even though they're decades old and I, you can't really see any parent sending their kid to a business that has that kind of, you know, revelation on their site. That that makes sense as like a legal theory because we require that uh, certain states require that of individuals who have been, uh, you know, have, you know, right. are, Megan, are, Megan's law and that. Do, yeah, yeah. Re, you have to register as a sex offender and and, it also, and there are like rules about where you can and cannot live. So it's, it's it's interesting to think about that from like, you know, to apply it to companies or people who employ. And it's like also that. interesting, too, because a lot of the victims who've spoken up said that they want to do it so that other people know what's right. gone on. So right. this sort of plays into that larger narrative of just sort of breaking down these barriers of silence about these issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's a big that's a big part of this suit, actually. So the Butler suit in, is really long. The complaint itself is really long, and it has page after page after page of just really detailed and and really hard to read uh, details about these girls' alleged relationships with Butler. And what the suit is really doing is giving giving them a chance, even if they can't sue him directly, even if they can't, you know, see him be charged criminally, they are getting to tell their stories. And similarly, he could be called to, he could be deposed as part of the suit, Mm -hmm. which, you know, would really lay all of this out in the open and could potentially have more victims come forward if there are any, um, you know, and, and sort of get the ball rolling on this. One thing that you did point out in your story that was interesting to me is that, you know, because you're because suits pursued under this legal theory are, you know, consumer protection class actions, the actual victims of people like this ostensibly couldn't be in those classes. Right. Because they would would have knowledge of this person's, you know, illicit activities. So it it did raise the question of if you can't really deliver relief for the actual victims directly, what's the point of pursuing a strategy like this? 
Well, I think that kind of touches on on what I was talking about. Yeah. They're getting to tell their stories. They're getting the media attention. They're getting, you know, the eyes on their alleged abuser here. And potentially it's worth saying that the proposed class in this suit is much wider than just the victims here. It's any parent. It's anyone who actually paid the money. And so there's a... There are a lot of people that could get relief, you know, beyond the victims. But at the same time, the victims are getting their chance to confront their alleged abuser. And it, it feels like like a check on the institutions that support these people, right? That it allows you to go after the folks who maybe knew or stand stood behind or, or were complicit in, in the kind of things that, that these suits are targeting. Yeah, so if this theory of liability holds up, um, some attorneys that I spoke with really said that it could spell major problems for organizations that could be accused of enabling sexual predators. So, you know, here we're talking about USA Volleyball or Michigan State University or USA Gymnastics in the Nasser case. You know, anyone who paid these organizations for classes, camps, or training and can claim that the organizations knew about this abuse but did nothing to notify these potential customers, they could bring a suit like this. And perhaps that would hopefully force future groups to be more be more aware and be more willing to sort of take proactive steps, right? Yeah, I mean, if they're facing this kind of liability, you know, they may take action earlier if they start hearing, uh, you know, accusations being leveled at one of their coaches. It could is really maybe not in their best interest from this perspective to keep them on. Diana, thanks for explaining this. It's going to be so interesting to see if this new tactic succeeds in addressing some of these issues. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks, Diana. Guys, we record on Thursdays as we typically do. Today's the Ides of March. Oh, you beat me to it. That was like my. That was like the one bit I had here. Yeah, recording I, on the Ides well, of March. It's great minds think alike, Alex. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't really know what we're talking about. So, by all means, we're talking about Shakespeare, which oh, so the yeah. Ides of March puts yes, yes, you in yes. that frame of mind. Right. So, there was um, a ruling that. You know, Bill, you said before, you kind of like it when judges get a little cute in Mm -hmm. how they write things. Mm -hmm. And there's one that quoted um, in the beginning and ending of a ruling from Othello. So I thought it was perfect. Oh, very good. Yeah. So this is a dispute where um, a California appellate panel agreed with the lower court that a man who spent $18 million on counterfeit wine didn't actually sustain a loss to his property that his insurance would have to cover. Whoa. Cool. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So that's kind of... I agree. I don't know any facts, but I I agree. Wow. Do you agree? Venturing out on a ledge there. Do you agree that the court called it a Shakespearean tragedy? That's how we're getting into this. I guess I got to hear a few more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's the opening line of this ruling. Oh, thou invisible spirit of wine, if thou hast no name be known by, let us call thee devil. Okay. Yeah. That's from Othello, guys. dork. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I can also... Full disclosure here, I took like five or six Shakespeare classes in college. Whoa, I'm kind brag. of brag. Wow. Kind of not to too. brag. That no, is... It's not a brag when you're basically saying like, I am also a dork who's a sucker for a ruling like this. Yeah. 
Um, so the next line <laughs> My starts. My girl's wicked smack. <laughs> the next line starts. Yay, verily, we're presented with the most unfortunate tale of a villainous wine dealer. So you can see how it's, yeah, it yeah, gets yeah. pretty cute here. Wait, why? What Did the facts of the case merit a Shakespeare thing? Or did he just get this idea? He just got this idea. That's but crazy. It, but it fits a little because this case is weird. So in 2007, <laughs> he, the guy who was suing his insurance, he began collecting um, and ensuring his, quote, world-class wine collection. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, he had the special policy for that, and it included a $19 million limit. So a big policy here. Um, he then bought $18 million worth of supposedly rare wine. But it turns out the person that sold that to him was um, a con artist who was filling empty bottles of wine from with his own wine blend, putting on counterfeit labels, and oh. selling it to wealthy people that could... Right. Collect these wines. I feel like I'm fine with all of this. Uh, the the crime. You can see how the court I, would then immediately think of it as like a Shakespearean level villain that's like got a little bit of a I wine. Guess. Yeah. I guess. Like that's where this all. I just ties think if together. you're buying if you're buying nineteen if you're buying like million dollar bottles of wine. I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe you deserve to be conned a little bit. <laughs> well, here's how the court decided that he didn't deserve to be conned, but didn't deserve his insurance to yeah. pay for it. He said that they. Um, they're insuring against losses to the wine, not insuring against any losses to, quote, Doyle's finances or to his unrealized expectations as to the value of the wine he uh, purchased. Yeah. So, like, if the wine had been destroyed in some way, yeah. he's insured for the wine itself. He's not insured if he made a bad decision in buying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still, I'm still struck, like... Was the judge just bored or something? I, you know, and hey, you, Bill has been a big proponent of these cute rulings where judges well, get created. But you brought this up at the beginning, and I, I'm, I'm like very on sort of polar ends here. Like, I sometimes I find it, like I sometimes I float between the ideas that yeah. like, oh, this is fun and cute, and like this is a miscarriage of justice. You're ruling on very important things. Why are you having fun with this? I like, will say, I float between those two very in different. In fairness positions. to this judge, the um. The ruling, the bulk of it is not in this cutesy right, Shakespearean okay. way. The it's, bulk of the ruling is straight up like you would normally read. Some, it's the beginning paragraphs and then a final end quote, which was a little bit of advice for this guy. Um, the quote is this. Finally, we can merrily offereth to Doyle this small piece of wisdom from the bard of Avon. The robbed that smiles steals something from the thief. Mm. So, Our yeah. cup runneth over with cheeky legal writing. <laughs> I don't know how to get out of that. That's, that that <laughs> seems like a good place. That'll wrap up our show for today. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. It was fun as always. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests, Diana Novak-Jones, and contributing reporters this week, Bonnie Esslinger, Chelsea Nasso, Matt Garnaccia, RJ Vogt, and Dave Simpson. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, check out our website at law360.com podcast. And if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and see you again next week.